0: If you like what you hear today, we encourage you to share this with your friends or family. Enjoy.
1: Well, I wanna start today with a real quick poll. So by round of applause, I'm gonna put some famous Christmas characters up on the screen and you just applaud and clap real loud if you would consider them one of your favorites. So let's put the first one up. This is Ralphie from Christmas Story. Anybody? Yeah. What about the next one, Clark Griswold? Yeah. We all know the best character in that movie, though. Who is it? Cousin Eddie. Yeah. (laughs) For those that are a little more sentimental, we got George Bailey. Anybody? Yes. If you're from my generation, Yukon Cornelius. Yeah. We got Scott Calvin. That's my Santa that I grew up with. Yeah. And then, of course, couldn't leave out Kevin McAllister. I could go on and on, but my favorite would be a tie between these two, Mr. Narwhal and uh, John McClain, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie and I will fight you over that fact. (laughs) There's actually so many of these Christmas characters. You can take the picture now. Uh, There's so many of these Christmas characters to choose from. I just Googled famous Christmas characters and hundreds of them showed up. Well, this week I want to talk about one of the Bible's favorite Christmas characters, and uh, it's probably someone you don't expect. And the cool thing is this is a person who spent a lot of time in the wilderness. So we get to wrap up our In the Wilderness series as well as kind of make our way into Christmas. But he is a person that all four Gospels use to bring Jesus onto the scene with, which is what we're celebrating this season. So you might think it's the angels. It's not. You might think it's the shepherds. It's not. Um, I might think it's the wise men that brought the gifts from the east, but no, those characters actually only show up in a gospel or two. The only character that is in all four gospels, and the character that Mark and Luke and John used to introduce Jesus is none other than John the Baptist, and that might be surprising. Um, But Mark immediately starts his gospel with John. Uh, The book of Luke has a quick introduction, and then it goes into John the Baptist. And then in the gospel of John, uh, there's those famous verses, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. But just five verses after that, in verse 6, John says, God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. In fact, if you grew up in a mainline church, something like Episcopal or a church that celebrated Advent, the first two weeks of Advent are dedicated to John the Baptist. See, when we think about Christmas, we think about um, uh, George Bailey or Santa Claus. But when the authors of the Bible thought about Christmas, they thought about John the Baptist. So why is that? What is it about John the Baptist that makes three out of the four gospel writers begin the story of Jesus with him And what can John teach us about the Christmas season? Well, a lot, as you're going to find out. But I'm going to warn you, this is the weirdest Christmas sermon you're ever going to hear. Uh, There's going to be lots of scripture. We're going to be jumping all over the place. But if you'll just hang with me and lean in, it'll mean something in the end. Um, If you don't know uh, who John is, John is Jesus's second cousin. So John's uh, mother, Elizabeth, is Mary's cousin. And uh, Elizabeth is married to a priest named Zachariah. And one day Zechariah is in the temple and an angel appears to him much like he appeared to Mary and to Joseph to announce that he was going to have a child in his old age and this is what the angel says the angel said don't be afraid Zechariah God has heard your prayer your wife Elizabeth will give you a son and you are to name him John and you will have great joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord he must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks because he's kind of kind of be a prophet And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will uh, be a man with the spirit and the power of Elijah. Remember that, the spirit and the power of Elijah. And he will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Remember that as well. And he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the ungodly. But his whole purpose in life would be to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. That's why he existed. That's why God put him on earth. And uh, sure enough, Elizabeth does become pregnant and the angel was correct. John was filled with the spirit even before his birth because uh, one day Mary, shortly after she gets pregnant with Jesus, she goes to visit Elizabeth. And as soon as Mary gets close to Elizabeth, the Bible says that John leapt for joy in her womb. Ladies, how'd you like to feel that? A baby leaping for joy. Probably not that comfortable. But it's because he knew that the Messiah that he was sent to proclaim was close by. Well, sure enough, John is born and his father also filled with the spirit, prophesies over him. And he says this in Luke 1, And you, my little son, will be called prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way of the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. And Luke tells us that John grew up and became strong in spirit and he lived in the wilderness until he began his public ministry to Israel. See, when he's old enough, he actually moves into the wilderness, which is where he's going to live in the desert until he's eventually arrested and beheaded for calling out the queen, Uh, which incidentally, you can actually go and uh, visit where John did his public ministry. Um, And if you want to go anytime soon, you can actually join our Israel trip, which is happening June 12th through the 23rd. You can go to the website or scan the QR to sign up for that. Um, And you can actually go to this place where this ministry happened. Can I tell you a secret? A lot of times people will get me to include announcements in my sermon, and sometimes it's really hard to find a good spot, but I thought that was pretty smooth. You think so? Yeah, I thought so too. All right. So when he is old enough, he, uh, he, he moves out into the wilderness, and he begins to preach. And he just he doesn't go into the cities. He stays in the desert and begins this ministry of preaching. And as he begins to preach, day in, day out, people begin to flock to him. Hundreds of people come at first, and then thousands of people came to him, which is weird because his message wasn't really that encouraging. His message was basically, hey, the day of the Lord is here. You better get ready. You better repent. It was kind of like a turn or burn sort of message, but yet people just flocked to him by the thousands. And so you have to ask why. What drew all these people to this crazy preacher out in the desert? And if you ask that question, it leads you on this interesting trail. You who have been in church for years might have never seen this. In John 1, it says this, the Jewish leaders sent priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem to ask John, hey, man, who are you? And he came right out and said, well, I'm not the Messiah, if that's what you're asking. And they said, well, then who are you? They asked, are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? That name keeps coming up, doesn't it? The angel said that he will have the spirit and the power of Elijah these people are maybe expecting Elijah. Jesus actually calls John the Baptist Elijah in Matthew 11. He says, if you're willing to accept what I say, he, John the Baptist, is Elijah, the one the prophet said would come. So apparently he attracted all these people because the people of Israel were expecting Elijah to come back and return to the earth, and they thought that John the Baptist was like, Elijah, come back for a second time. What in the world is going on, all right? Hang with me. Let's go on a little journey, okay? If this is your first time here, uh, Christmas Eve will not be like this, I promise. Invite your friends, it's not gonna be weird, but if you'll stick with me, it's really cool what we'll learn. Elijah, if you don't know, he lived about 900 years before John the Baptist. He's one of the most famous prophets in the Old Testament. And God used him really to call out um, King Ahab. That's who he served underneath. And uh, King Ahab was a pretty evil king, mainly because he was married to a really evil queen called Jezebel. And Jezebel is the one that got rid of all the altars of the Lord and made people worship Baal and actually um, threatened people who worship the one God of the Bible. And so Elijah was used by God to basically call Ahab and Jezebel out. And Jezebel hated this. She she vowed that she would kill Elijah at one point. But God also used Elijah to call all of Israel to repentance as well. So Elijah's main message was, hey, Israel, stop sinning. (laughs) God's going to pour out his judgment. He's going to rain down punishment if you don't. And that was his message because here's how how Elijah kind of thought about things. And here's how they kind of thought about it in the Old Testament as well. Early in the Old Testament, people knew that there was such a thing called sin. Okay, the Israelites knew that. And they knew there was such a thing called sin because God had told them, hey, there's such a thing called sin. But they thought a very simplistic way about sin. They thought sin was just the actions that you do, right? So you steal some money, okay, that's bad, that's a sin. Uh, you, he- you beat someone up, that's sin. Uh, you worship a different God, that's a sin. And sin is bad because it hurts other people, but also because God hates it and he will punish it. But see, Israel was special because God had chosen to reveal to them all of these rules and all of these regulations about how to avoid sin. And how to be good. So he had basically come to Israel and said, hey, sin is bad, but here's a roadmap that shows you the way out of sin and into a righteous sort of life. And if you do good things and not bad things, guess what? I'm not going to punish you. I will reward you. And so Israelites believed that you could basically divide humanity into two groups of people. You had good people over here and you had bad people over here that sinned with a line going in between. And... uh, Incidentally, that's probably how a lot of us think that you can divide the world, with a group of bad people here, a line, and then good people over here. Um, Now, we would put the line in different places, maybe. Maybe some people say, you know, the only good people are those that know God's rules and obey them, and the religious people, and all the people that don't do that, they're in the bad category. Or someone might say, you know, I'm not really all that religious. But I don't hurt anyone, and I actually go out of my way to help people. So I think I'm in the category, and here's the line, and all these other people are bad. Or someone else might say, you know what? I've been known to hurt a few people in my past, but I'm not going around murdering people. And so here's the line. I think a lot of us would still think that that's how you divide humanity, with a good group over here, a bad group over here, and a line in between. And most people kind of live their lives trying to be in the good group. Well, that was Israel, and that was Elijah. And so Elijah's message was basically him traveling around the country and reminding people, hey, you got to stay in the good group. And when Israel started to sin and fall into evil, they said, hey, hey, no, no, no. Remember, you got to stay in the good group or God's going to judge you. God's going to punish you. And that, but what the Israelites learned over the course of the Old Testament after Elijah, I would say died. But you guys know Elijah never died a chariot of fire came down, and he was swept up into heaven through a whirlwind. So maybe that's part of the reason the Israelites thought he would return because he never died. But after he went up to heaven, the Israelites realized that this, this way of dividing history into a good group and a bad group with a line in between, it's not really correct. It's not a good way to think about the world. You see, even though Israel had all of these rules and regulations, and even though they had this roadmap that showed them the way out of sin, try as they might, they could never obey, not in the long run. And they wanted to, they desperately wanted to be good, but time and time again, they always came up short. And Israel's history became this this downward cycle of them falling into sin and God punishing, God judging, God disciplining. Then Israel would repent and then God would restore them and they would be good for a little bit and then they'd fall back into sin. And God would judge and God would discipline and God would punish over and over and over again. So much so that the Israelites began learning, hey, you can't really divide humanity into a good group and a bad group. That's not how it works with a line in between. What what humanity really is, is that line goes through each one of our hearts. And there's a little bit of good and there's a whole lot of bad in every single individual. See, every single person is simultaneously created in the image of God with a capacity to do good things, but that image is broken and there's this inward pull. There's this force that pulls us to sin. In fact, that's how the New Testament describes sin. It's not simply the bad actions that you do. Those are the symptoms of sin. But sin with a capital S, it's a, it's a force that's taken up residence in God's creation. It's a power that has enslaved and infected every single person. And no amount of discipline, and no amount of encouragement, and no amount of punishment, and no amount of rules or regulations can stop this pull that we feel into sin. You ever felt that pull before? I have. You ever identify with, with what Paul said in Romans seven—the the bad things that I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. <laughs> and the good things I want to do, I can't—I can't seem to do that. Man, Jenny has asked me. The, the biggest question ever in our marriage is, why, did, why, why in the world did you do such a stupid thing? And I always say, well, if I knew why I did it, I wouldn't have done it in the first place, right? That, that's sin. And So what Israel realized and what each one of us individually need to realize is that when it comes to this sin problem, we can't fix ourselves. We don't have the power to make ourselves right or good. If there's going to be hope, something outside of us has to enter in and break the power of sin, and give us the power to be good. God can never just say, hey, be good. He has to give us the power and the ability to do that. And during this time, God gave little hints and shadows that one day he would do just that. If you keep reading throughout the Old Testament and Isaiah and Jeremiah, they start talking about this, this day of the Lord. You ever heard that? The day of the Lord. This day of the Lord. That comes up over and over in the Old Testament. And the day of the Lord is when God says that he would step into human history and intervene. And all this stuff would happen on that day. First, evil people would be punished. There would be discipline. There would be judgment. But not only that, he would would disarm the power of sin. He would take away the power and and the force of sin itself. He would remove that inward pull that each of us has, and he would bless and he would reward uh, the faithful people that followed him. So the day of the Lord, he would judge and he would destroy, but he would also bless and he would also show mercy. And the Israelites heard this and they're like, how in the world is that gonna work? Like we know now that we're not the good guys. Like we're actually the bad guys. So does this Day of the Lord mean that we're going to be judged and punished? How how can God judge sin, and yet still be merciful? How does judgment and mercy work together? They didn't know, but even though they didn't fully understand, this is what Israel began to put their hope in: the Day of the Lord, the Day of the Lord. And God told them through the prophets that they would be able to tell when the Day of the Lord was about to happen through these certain signs. And and the very last words of the Old Testament contain one of these signs. All right, this is a long text, but hang with me, hang with me. Listen. Malachi is the very last book, and in the very last verses of the very last chapter of the very last book, this is what God says The Lord of heaven's army says, The day of judgment is coming, burning like a furnace. On that day, the arrogant and the wicked will be burned up like straw. They will be consumed, roots, branches, and all. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And you will go free from the power of sin, leaping with joy like calves led out to pasture. Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. And his preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. It's the very last words of the Old Testament. You wanna know what the very first words of the New Testament are? The very first book is Mark. It's not Matthew. Matthew and Luke based their gospels off of the shorter book of Mark. This is what Mark says. The very first words of the New Testament. This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you and he will, he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. This messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. And all of Judea, including all the people of Israel, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. Listen to this. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist. You wanna know what Elijah looked like? There's only one physical description, 2 Kings 1.8. He was a hairy man with a belt around his waist. See, this is why the people asked if Elijah had returned because they were waiting for Elijah to return. And when he did, that's when the day of the Lord would begin. And John is that Elijah returned. He's that promised messenger. You see, John stood between in the middle of the end of one age and the beginning of a new age. He stood on the dividing line of all of human history. And he was God's mouthpiece to announce, hey, the old is about to be gone and the new is coming. God's going to intervene finally. He's going to do something decisive about this sin problem. The day of the Lord is at hand. Judgment and mercy. So repent. Repent, today is the day, there's no time to waste. Repent, for the day of the Lord is here. And this is the message, and this is the ministry that John devoted his entire life to. Every single decision he made, every single act he did, he was the most single-minded individual, I think, in all of scripture. And this is what he devoted himself to, this ministry of preparation. And he knew that Jesus had something to do with the day of the Lord. He knew that he was something special, so he he pointed anyone and everyone that he could towards Jesus. But see, even John didn't understand exactly what the day of the Lord would be like. He thought it would be this one-time event. He thought that God's going to use Jesus to set up a kingdom where all the evil people outside of Israel would be destroyed and would be punished. And all the good people inside Israel that had repented would be blessed and would be rewarded. And he thought all of this would happen at one time. But see, when Jesus came on the scene, he did weird stuff, didn't he? Did he judge sinners? No, he ate with them and welcomed them. Did he immediately bless religious people? No, that's who he speaks the most harshest to. Did he set up his own kingdom? Not at all. He seemed not to be concerned with that whatsoever. The kingdom that Jesus brought with him was very different than John thought it would be. And it got to the point later in life where John went through his own wilderness experience. He actually doubted. He began to have these doubts because, see, he had called out the queen during his day. And the queen, just like Jezebel with Elijah, said, you know what? For my birthday, I would like his head on a platter. And so he knew he's about to be um, beheaded. He's in prison and so when he's in prison, he sends his disciples to Jesus just to ask him, hey, can you go make sure that he's the dude that I've been waiting for? Like, is he the guy that's going to initiate this day of the Lord? Because I'm in prison and obviously evil people like the queen are getting away with it. And good people like me aren't being blessed. What, what's the deal? What's the deal? And Jesus responds, hey, go tell John I am the one. You see, what John never got to find out, but what we know today is that the kingdom that Jesus brought that first Christmas, the day of the Lord that Jesus ushered in, it defied everybody's expectations because people were looking for a king, bringing a kingdom. But instead, that little baby that we're going to celebrate in just a few days would grow up and he would be crucified on a cross. See, no one could have imagined that the way that God dealt with the sin problem was in Jesus See, through the cross, he would judge sin, destroy sin's power, and make a way of blessing for all people. See, he judged every single sinful action and every single sinful person. But he poured out that judgment, not on those people individually, but instead he poured it all out on Jesus. And through Jesus' death, he made a way for all people to be blessed. Not just good people, right? Because there's none that are good, but all people, And he destroyed the power of sin as well. And now we know that he actually can place his spirit inside of our hearts to give us a greater force, a greater pull into righteousness. And see, now Jesus has ascended into heaven where he's waiting patiently so that every single person with that line of good and bad in their heart, every single individual would have a chance to be forgiven. And see, now there's a whole new way to divide humanity. You can't divide humanity with good people and bad people. That doesn't work. And it's not the hopeless situation of the Old Testament where everyone's in the bad category. No, 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 no. Now we divide uh, humanity into two categories, those that have responded to the grace and salvation of God and those that haven't. And there's all types of people in both camps. There's there's good people that realize they can't be good enough and that, that have reached out for salvation. There's bad people that have had so many failures and mistakes that have realized they can't be too bad. They can't flunk out of God's mercy that have reached out for that salvation. There's all sorts of people in this group that have been forgiven because of Jesus, and then there's those that refuse. And what we now know is that the day of the Lord is actually two days, a day of mercy and grace now and a day of final judgment later when Christ returns. So why do I say all this? (laughs) told you it's a weird message. What does this have to do with us, with you? Well, Jesus says something very interesting about John the Baptist and about you in the same verse. It's in Matthew 11 where he says, I tell you the truth of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Imagine if Jesus said that about you. Hey, have everybody ever lived? Him, her, she's the best, right? He actually does say that about you. He says, yet even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What does that mean? How are we greater than John? Well, for one, we have greater insight than John. We know what the kingdom of God is like. It's a kingdom for all people who would just receive God's free gift. We know what the cross was all about. We know how God would disarm the power of sin. But more than that, we have a greater mission than John. See, just like John stood in the middle of one age ending and a new age beginning, that's where you and I stand right now today. And just like John's whole purpose was to prepare people for the coming of Jesus, so my whole purpose and your whole purpose is to prepare people for his second coming. See, we live in an age of grace, of unparalleled mercy. Every single person. From the greatest to the least, from from the best behaved to the worst, people that have failed, that have made a mess of their lives, in this moment in human history, God stands ready to open his arms and embrace them and forgive them and welcome them and heal their lives. And all anyone has to do is believe in their hearts and confess with their mouth that he is Lord and they will be saved. There's no religious tests they have to pass. There's no hoops they have to jump through. They don't have to clean themselves up. It's like a universal do-over. It's a second chance for everyone. But see this age of grace, it's not going to last forever. If Christmas tells us anything, it's that God's good on his promises. He promised he sent his son and Jesus promised that he's going to come back. And when he comes back, he's not going to come back as a little innocent baby in a manger. He's going to come back as the final judge. And those that refuse his gift now will be condemned on that day. And there will be no second chance. And that's sad, but listen, the good news is that that day hasn't come yet. (laughs) Right now, they can be forgiven. I love how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians. Working together with him, with God, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And at a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. See, you have been put on earth to prepare people for the second coming of Jesus, to proclaim to anyone and everyone the day of the Lord is at hand. That's why every single Christmas should be like this this splash of cold water on our face, this huge wake-up call. He came once, he's going to come again. So that should give us some hope that the evil and the suffering, it's not going to be around forever, and maybe we can make it, Till that long, and it should fill us with the sense of urgency. Like when he comes back, it's gonna to be too late. Yesterday's gone, tomorrow's not promised, today is the day of salvation. And it should fill us with the sense of boldness, shouldn't it? We should unashamedly talk about sin because it's real and it has people enslaved and trapped. And then in the next breath, we should talk about Jesus' grace and his mercy and his free gift. And we should talk as much to as many people as we possibly can, and we shouldn't care if it's awkward. We shouldn't care if people get offended. We have the most important news in the history of the world, and we should shout it from the rooftops every chance we get, You see? In the midst of the broken world that we find ourselves in, we should be like that single-minded, absolutely devoted person, John the Baptist, standing between the end of one age and the beginning of another, the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. So this Christmas, I want you to ask yourself two questions. First, are you prepared? He came once, he's going to come again. And there's grace and there's mercy, free for the taking. And all you have to do to not just be forgiven and to escape that judgment, but to see your life transformed It's to believe in your heart and confess in your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And if that's you and you want to make that decision, that you want to prepare yourself, man, raise your hand online, type into the chat at one of our campuses. Talk to the person that brought you. They would love that. That's probably why they brought you. Talk to a staff member. But for those of you that are prepared, I want to ask you this. Who can you prepare? Who in your life at this very moment is far from God but close to you? Who do you think you could bring up the name of Jesus in a conversation to? Who needs some healing? Who needs some hope? Who needs a second chance? Who can you tell about the king that will come again? Think about that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that it's given in love and that it's true. Father, we confess that we get busy building our own kingdoms instead of preparing the way for yours. Father, we we lift up our own name instead of the name of Jesus. So would you forgive us? But Father, we want to be faithful. We want to be obedient. We want to see many, many people enter into your kingdom. And so as hearts open during this Christmas season and people are more open to spiritual conversations, would you give us words that are just seasoned with grace? (laughs) Would you give us gospel conversations? Would you allow us just the words to reach into someone's heart and just to point them towards Jesus? because we want them to know the joy and the hope and the life that we have. So we love you. It's the beautiful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message and encourage you to share it with your friends and family. If you live in the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina, we'd love to meet you at one of our weekend gatherings. For campus locations, service times, and information on our children and student environments, check out GetHope.net. To make sure you don't miss our next message, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. We would like to invite you to support what we are doing by visiting githubnet slash give. Through generosity of people like you, Hope can run programs like our food pantry, homework club, project classroom, and many more.